0: Listening to a podcast from Saint Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody! Yeah, that's good. That's good. Probably been a a, a decade or so ago that I was listening to the late Stuart McLean on his Vinyl Cafe radio program. Talk about how much he loved Christmas, why he loved Christmas. Now I think this particular episode fell during the week between Christmas Day and New Year's as all of the big build-up had passed and he was now in a more reflective holiday sort of a space. McLean was speaking about his family's tree And what a lovely thing it is to have this season in which somehow it makes sense to haul a tree into the living room, decorate it with lights and all manner of baubles, including the homemade ones and the, the ones that have been passed along from his childhood. And to have it there as the centerpiece in the living room for a couple of weeks McLean said that one of his favorite things was to wait until everyone else in the house had gone to bed for the night, pour himself a little drink, sit across from the tree with only its lights illuminating the living room, and enjoy a little space of peace and wonder. When else, he said, when else but at Christmas would we even think of doing such a thing. And yes, when else? It is at the darkest time of the year that we mark this feast. And when you think about it, when else would we want to celebrate in this particular way? Tomorrow, the sun will not rise until 825, and it will set again at 431, offering us just a few minutes Over eight hours of daylight. Each day over the coming weeks and months will bring us a little more light, barely perceptible at first, until we finally made our way through to the middle of March and finally, finally, there will be as much daylight as nighttime. Before we get there, of course, it will get colder. But even in January, we'll begin to recognize that the earth has turned, that each day there is just that much more sunlight, and we will relish it. Now, ancient peoples across many cultures and in many regions celebrated a feast over the long, dark night of the winter solstice. And nowhere was that more important than in the countries of northern Europe, in what is now Germany, Scandinavia, Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales. Those nights were not only long, but also cold. Spring could feel very, very distant at this time of the year, and you could only hope that you'd stored enough food to get you through to the point when things would begin to grow again. Some of the rituals and religious practices at this time of the year were meant to call the gods of the spring to come back to life again. And when the days did begin to lengthen, they could believe that it was going to happen. But first, a time of solstice feasting with fires for warmth and light and much food and drink, living abundantly in spite of the scarcity that might well come when the stores of food ran short. Among the symbols of hope against the dark that these ancient peoples used were candles, the evergreen tree, wreaths, and holly. All sounding a bit familiar, isn't it? And it should, because we have carried so much from them into our own practices at this time of the year, was, I think, part of the genius of the church as the Christian faith began to expand through those regions. Rather than coming in and saying, oh, put away those nasty pagan practices. Take on the habits and patterns from around the Mediterranean. That's the real thing. No, no. Those ancient Christians essentially said, wow, Great time of the year for a feast. Great symbols. They work perfectly to celebrate not only the return of the sun in the sky, but the coming of the one true sun. Now that will make for a feast. The first recorded celebration of Christmas comes from a document compiled in the year 354 in which these words appear for the year 336. December 25, Christ born in Bethlehem, Judea. Prior to that, there is no sign of any church celebration of the birth of Jesus. In other words, for over 300 years, there was no Christmas. There was an Easter Easter having been celebrated since at least the mid-150s. That was the day that mattered most and, of course, still does. And in a very real sense, Easter was and is marked every single Sunday in the sharing of communion. But now there they were in 336, just shortly after the Roman Empire had come to recognize Christianity as an acceptable faith had put an end to all the persecutions against the Christians, Christmas begins to emerge. And it gradually develops and spreads, and again across northern Europe it takes on a a very particular importance at just the darkest time of the year. Now it was no straight line from the ancient Romans to those Christian Europeans to our current day, In fact, some of the Reformation traditions forbade the observance of Christmas. They saw it as being superstitious and an indulgent holdover from medieval Catholicism. In Scotland, the land of my forebears, Christmas was actually outlawed for several hundred years. Apparently, in the mid-1600s, zealous Church of Scotland Presbyterian clergy were known to search homes for signs of what they called the superstitious goose. That was the meal of choice. So, like the superstitious turkey. And to look for workers who'd taken the day off. You weren't supposed to. Funny thing, though, is that Particularly in the lowlands, the Scots just transferred the desire to have a a midwinter feast from Christmas to New Year's to Hogmany, which to this day is a more important festival for many Scots. You just can't keep a good feast down. But Christmas is more than just a good winter feast. A lighted tree in the living room is fun and lovely. Gathering friends and family for great meals is a very good thing. The generosity that people show at this time of the year is also good. And isn't it grand to tell stories about Scrooge and Santa and watch the kids unpack their Christmas stockings. But there's also this story we tell tonight, which is lovely in its own way, though not without some edges that we do well to remember. In those days, a decree went out from the Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered, or as the King James Version translated it, that all the world should be taxed. All the world should be taxed, and those King James translators were probably right on on that count, because there was only one reason that empires registered the peoples in the lands that they had conquered, and that was to tax them. All went down to their own towns to be registered, to their own towns to be registered, which when you think about it is an odd way to do things, not We'll send the census takers out to where you're living. Oh, no, no, not that. Instead, go to the place where your forebears came from. That's where we'll do the head count. Whatever else that's about, I think Luke is wanting us to see something of how empires treat people, like cattle, like numbers, like pieces on a chessboard that they can move about. At will, And so the story continues. Joseph and Mary go to the place that Joseph's forebears came from, to Bethlehem. Evidently, though, Joseph's branch of the family has been long gone from that region, because when they get there, they have nowhere to stay, no relatives to take them in. And so they land in a stable, Mary ready to give birth to that baby, that would have been no easy thing. Did one of the women from the town take pity on them and maybe come to serve as a midwife? Or was it left to Joseph to do what he could? If it had been just Joseph, as a man of his world, he would have been totally out of his depth. And when Jesus is safely born in that stable, far from home, due to the whims of an emperor, the news is announced to shepherds. Now, in that world, it was often women and children who did the shepherding work, perhaps families together. It was hard work, marginal work, out-on-the-edge work, for largely statusless people. And that's something Luke very much wants us to see as he unfolds this account. Here, in a story that begins with an emperor issuing orders that uproot people in order to better tax them, things end with people of no power, no status, bearing witness to the baby who, the angel had said, is the long-awaited Messiah and Lord. The real action in the story is taking place not in the emperor's palace in Rome, not in Herod's royal home in Jerusalem, but rather here in a stable in Bethlehem, witnessed by shepherds whose names no one even thought to ask. The Messiah has come for the sake of the last and the lost and the least and the little, which is pure gospel, of course. And it comes as a fragile baby born in a barn to parents displaced from their home for the sake of an imperial bureaucracy. And isn't that something to ponder? Enjoy what tomorrow morning brings, whatever it is, Delight in your tree and the lights and decorations, and feast well over these 12 days of Christmas. But don't forget the story, because in the core story begins the world's deepest hope. Merry Christmas. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.